before I dive in, I want to make sure to mention a couple of pretty important things coming up. In April, we're going to have some baby dedications. So if you have a baby or a young child you want to dedicate to the Lord, we would love to, to celebrate that as a faith family. You could just mark your, your blue connection card and we'll follow up with you on that. Uh, uh, also, we've got our baptism service coming up. That is always one of the highlights of the year. Uh, if you've never been baptized, I want you to consider that. And even if you're not really sure about baptism, you got some questions, that's exactly what our baptism class is for. So the class is coming up. You can see just a couple of weeks. And I'd love for you to mark your connection card. We'd follow up with you on that. And uh, just a couple of great uh, next steps for different folks there. The Gospel of Mark opens with a very simple but very profound phrase. Mark 1.1 says, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus, the good news. So Mark is telling us that what he's writing is a record of the beginning of the Gospel. And indeed, right away or, or immediately, as Mark is so fond of saying, that word immediately shows up 41 times in the book of Mark. Immediately, Jesus sets about proclaiming that gospel. A little further down in chapter 1, we read this. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. The kingdom of God has come near. He says, it's in your midst. It's here. Therefore, repent and believe the gospel. As Jesus' ministry continues, he clarifies for his followers just what is meant by repent and believe the gospel, this good news. Chapter 8, Jesus says this. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. Losing our lives for Jesus and for the sake of the gospel. Giving up our lives for the sake of the gospel. That's Jesus' challenge to each and every one of us. As we continue in the Gospel of Mark, the the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus, Jesus tells us once again what it means to live as his followers. Listen to this from chapter 10. Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and for the Gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age and in the age to come eternal life. But... Many who are first will be last, and the last first. Once again, this emphasis is on living for the gospel, sacrificing for the gospel. As we continue in the book of Mark, we see another passage, chapter 13. Jesus says, you must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils, flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. So being a gospel witness involves suffering, persecution. It's hard, but the gospel must move continually forward. Jesus himself tells us it must be proclaimed to all the nations, everybody, everywhere. And it happens at great cost, cost to us, but also cost to him. Look at the next chapter, Mark 14. While he, Jesus, was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those pregnant were saying uh, indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. 
leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told. So even the Messiah himself must suffer for the sake of the gospel. Jesus doesn't rebuke her because she understands that. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed, her sacrifice is told because she understands. The gospel involves sacrifice for her, but more so for Jesus himself. She knows his death is on the horizon. He's going to live out the things that he's been proclaiming, giving up his very life for the sake of the gospel. All throughout this book, this beginning of the gospel, there's a thread. The gospel must be lived out, and the gospel involves sacrifice. It involves suffering in many cases. The gospel must be proclaimed. It must be lived out, but it comes at a cost. And yet whoever loses their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. They find a life that's truly life. We're in a series in the book of Titus. I'd love for you to open your Bible to Titus chapter 2. Titus 2. And, and in my Bible, the, the heading of this section is very interesting. The heading of this section in Titus says, Doing good for the sake of the gospel. Doing good for the sake of the gospel. So if what Mark wrote, if what we just looked at is the beginning of the gospel, then you could already tell that this section in Titus is going to involve some sacrifice. The gospel must be lived out but it comes at a cost. Paul understood that. He gave his life for the gospel. Titus understood that. He suffered right alongside Paul in many cases. And now Paul encourages Titus to demonstrate it to the church, doing good for the sake of the gospel. And that sacrifice looks different for each of us. It might not involve us literally giving our lives. It might just involve us giving our preferences, our comfort, giving up our time, our resources for the sake of the gospel. Those things are important sacrifices to make, and each and every one of us shows up in this passage. We all have a responsibility. And this idea of doing good or of good works, it's something that shows up all over Titus. I'd encourage you to read through the book of Titus and look for it. It shows up all over the book. The book's only three chapters long, but this idea shows up at least seven times, doing good for the sake of the gospel. And in our study so far, we've already seen it in a couple of places. Right at the very beginning, the first verse of the book of Titus, we see it. Paul introduces the book of Titus this way. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So see, Paul wants to give us knowledge, but not just knowledge for the sake of knowledge. He wants to give us knowledge that leads somewhere, that shows up in some way. It leads to godliness, or what he calls later on in the book, Good works, doing good for the sake of the gospel. We've seen this idea of doing good elsewhere at the end of chapter 1. Paul's talking about these, these false, che- uh, false teachers, these folks who, who say they know the gospel, but they're deceived. And the criticism of them is very noteworthy. He says they're unfit for doing anything good. Ultimately, that's how we recognize these false teachers, these false church leaders. They're unfit for doing anything good. Their their false gospel, it doesn't involve any sacrifice. It doesn't involve doing good. Their false teaching is just for their own benefit. It doesn't show up in their lives at all. That's the difference between the false gospel and the real gospel, doing good. And all throughout this book of Titus, Paul emphasizes this theme of doing good for the sake of 
of the gospel. That's what I want us to explore today. All of us have a responsibility to do good for the sake of the gospel. And it shows up in this passage we're looking at. And there's something really fascinating here. Don't miss this. Paul emphasizes this idea of doing good. But it could look like a lot of different things, right? I mean, if we went around this room and brainstormed, we could think of a hundred ways we could do good for the sake of the gospel, right? Even uh, Jesus' own disciples we saw in Mark 14, they could think of a way to do good. They said, wow, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, right? I mean, doing good might be giving to the poor. might be any number of things. But don't miss this, because right here in Titus, Paul tells Titus only one thing. One thing that everybody in the church can and should do. One responsibility that we all have. One good thing we can all do for the sake of the gospel. So let's look at this thing, this one thing that Paul chooses. Look with me at Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 1. But as for you, communicate the behavior that goes with sound teaching. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Older women, likewise, are to exhibit behavior fitting for those who are holy, not slandering, not slaves to excessive drinking, but teaching what is good. In this way, they'll train the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, fulfilling their duties at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the message of God may not be discredited. Encourage younger men likewise to be self-controlled, showing yourself to be an example of good works in every way. So this whole section tells us how to live out good works, how to live out the gospel. And it all boils down to one thing, investing in others, and specifically investing in people from other generations. And I think I know why Paul chose this one thing, investing in other generations, as a way to do good works for the sake of the gospel, because it's hard. All of us are bad at this. It's hard. It's uncomfortable. It's easy for us to stick with people who are like us, have our same interests, uh, the same generation as us. We look at the world the same way. We kind of speak the same language. We have common experiences. But it's hard to interact with other generations. We're, We're instantly out of our element. We're like, what are they even talking about? What does that word mean, right? I heard a comedian one time talking about the difference in generations. He said it this way. He said, if you're a baby boomer, you were probably never told growing up that you were special or unique in some way, right? Or if you were told that, it was something like, what do you think, you're special? Right? (laughs) Well, contrast that with kids today where every kid is special. You know, you get a ribbon for coming in 12th place out of 12, right? We're just different. Each generation is different. And there's six generations here at Trinity. That's a lot of differences. And the differences, they scare us. We don't know how to relate to other generations easily. But here in Titus, Paul says that the one thing that we can do to advance the gospel is to do just that, to invest in other generations. And so this morning, I want us to talk about that, about how each of us has a responsibility, a responsibility to invest in the next generation. And each of us has an opportunity, an opportunity to learn from the generations ahead of us. So we all have a responsibility, and we all have an opportunity, looking back and looking forward. Let's start with the responsibility. 
Notice right here at the beginning of this passage, Paul tells Titus, communicate the behavior that goes with sound teaching. So the whole section's about behavior. You know, we tend to want to focus on sound teaching. We're all hungry for more teaching. I mean, if we're, if we're going to invest in other generations, we, we don't feel like we know enough to do that. We don't, we, we've got to learn more. So we want to learn. We're eager to learn. So we want to focus on teaching, right? And that's important. But far too often, that's where we want to stop. We want to learn, we want that sound teaching, but we never get around to putting it into practice. We just keep learning and learning and learning. But just like Paul says at the beginning of this letter, our knowledge of the truth should lead to godliness, to to behavior. He tells Titus to teach the behavior that goes with sound teaching. It's all about doing good for the sake of the gospel. And it's all about investing in the next generation's. See, for Paul, advancing the gospel involves behavior that goes along with that teaching. Uh, You may recall the the beginning of this uh, uh, letter, chapter 1, Paul's purpose in writing the letter was to instruct Titus how to put things in order in the church. That's, That's a big idea that encompasses the whole letter. What is required to put things in order? And part of setting things in order was establishing elders. You see that in chapter 1. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Another part is what we see right here in chapter 2, making sure that the church has behavior that lines up with the gospel, using sound teaching to achieve that kind of behavior. When I was in high school, I was really into acting. I had a really dynamic acting teacher in high school. She used to have all kinds of sayings, you know, different ways, uh, things she would say to encourage us or challenge us. And, and, you know, when you're acting, everybody wants to be the star. Everybody wants a big role. They want it to be really all about you, right? One of the first things you do when you get a part in a show is you, is you look through the script to see how many lines you have. How big is your part, you know? And sometimes you're really pleased. You've got a lot of lines. You've got a big part. Sometimes you're disappointed. You're like the guy who stands in the back and waves, you know, whatever. But, uh, but whenever anybody would complain about their small part, then my teacher would pull out one of their sayings. She would always say, there are no small parts. There are only small actors, right? There are no small parts. There are only small actors. And then people would jokingly add, like Chris Harrison. (laughs) But there are no small parts. And in this section, Paul tells Titus to teach everyone to live out the gospel, to do good works. Everybody has a role to play. Everybody plays a part, and there are no small parts. Every part is important. Notice there's instructions here for older men, for older women, for younger women, for younger men. Everybody gets sound teaching, and that sound teaching should show up in our lives, all of us. So I want us to look briefly at the specific roles that we all have to play. The passage starts off with the older men. Look at verse 2. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. So, So their role is really to set an example to be the leaders and what it looks like to do good for the sake of the gospel. They're leading the way. They're they're the the pace car, setting the pace for how well the church does and living out the gospel. Everyone else should be able to look at the lives of older men in the church and know how to live out the gospel. Everybody should be able to see it in their lives. And notice each of these descriptors has to do with behavior, with how it shows up in their lives. Are they temperate? In other words, are they not chasing after every whim or overindulging? Uh, Different translations say sensible or sober-minded. These men are displaying the kind of wisdom that comes from experience, from following God. 
Do they exhibit self-control? You know, these qualities are the kind of qualities that you want every person to have. Uh, They should be moderate, self-controlled, dignified. But notice there's some specific Christian virtues these older men are to model. Faith, love, endurance. In the Bible, love is always active. It's not just a feeling. It's an action, always outward. Do the older men in the church display love, active, sacrificial love? All of these things should show up in their behavior. Their role is to set an example for others. Others can look to them and know how to behave themselves. And this word that's translated older, it literally means advanced in the process. So they're not just physically older, but they should be advanced in the process, spiritually advanced, so that they can set an example. That's the first role here. So not just older in terms of age, but also more mature. And maturity is not determined just by age, not determined how much a person knows. It's determined by how skilled a person is at applying the truth to their life. That's a good definition of maturity, skill in applying the truth to your life. And as I think about this role, uh, this role that older men can play, I can't help but think about my own father. I got the privilege of talking to my father all the time. In fact, I just went and spent a few days with him a couple weeks ago. And, and I talked to him not just because he's my dad, but also because he had a successful career. I got a lot of things I can learn from him about that. Uh, he raised great kids, so I can learn some things about parenting from him. Uh, he's got a real heart for ministry, a heart for people. He encourages me in that. All the kinds of qualities that an older man should model, I'm able to learn from him. But the best part is he knows the role that he has to play. That means he calls me way more than I call him. I mean, usually by the time I call him, I got a real problem on my hands. I really need some, like, emergency wisdom, you know. But I've kind of let things develop to the point where, where I really need some help. But, but generally, before that happens, he calls me. He doesn't wait because he knows the kind of role that he can play in my life, and he plays it, not just by example, but by action. He reaches out to me. He's such a great help, and that's how older men should live, setting an example and being active in the role that they have to play, reaching out to younger people, sharing that wisdom that they've gained. Paul next addresses the older women, women who are advanced in the process. Look with me at verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to exhibit behavior fitting for those who are holy, not slandering, not slaves to excessive drinking, but teaching what is good. So again, these older women, they've got this role of setting an example, but they also have more than that. The older women are commanded to teach. Once again, behavior is the key, doing good for the sake of the gospel. It shows up as being an example and as teaching, uh, not just teaching by word, but also by deed. And notice they're specifically teaching what is good, verse 3. The passage goes on in verse 4 to say, in this way, they'll train the younger women. In their teaching and in their example, they're training the younger women. They're specifically investing in the next generation. And you know, our culture is increasingly hostile towards older people. Our culture celebrates the young, celebrates the energy that comes with youth, but it's very quick to discard the wisdom that can come from the spiritually mature. But the church should be different. We're called to invest cross-generationally, looking forward and looking back. We don't discard the older generation, and the older generation certainly can't discard their God-ordained responsibility to invest in younger people. That's why I love this quote from a Bible scholar named Philip Towner. Uh, He says this specifically in regards to older women. 
He says, we've bought into the notion that older people have had their day of usefulness and ought to make way for the young. But the principle here is quite the opposite. With age and experience come wisdom. And many older women have discovered secrets of godly living in relation to their husbands, children, and neighbors, and in the workplace that could save younger women a lot of unnecessary grief. And when the unavoidable trials come to the young woman, who better to guide her through than an older sister who has been through it before? Somehow, the church must see that younger women have contact with older women. We're actually working on a, on a women's event coming up that's going to help us do just that, some cross-generational engagement. So, so everybody has a responsibility to invest in the generations behind them, being an example and also being actively engaged in the next generations. And the younger people also have a role to play. They have behavior of their own that advances the gospel. In this passage, these younger women, they're neck deep and raising their families, living out their faith in their day-to-day lives. Notice the kind of things they're supposed to be focused on. It says, train the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be self-controlled. Again, all these things are behaviors. Living out the gospel in their relationships and in their responsibilities. And notice the purpose of their behavior. All this work is so that the message of God may not be discredited. That's the end of verse 5. They're doing good for the sake of the gospel. That's the role that every single one of us has. It looks a little different for each of us, but that's the role, working to advance the gospel in our behavior. Finally, the young men, look at verse 6. Encourage younger men likewise to be self-controlled, showing yourself to be an example of good works in every way. Again, there's this role, living out an example, to do good for the sake of the gospel. They learn the example from older folks. They learn how to live it out themselves in their own lives. Everybody has a part to play, and there are no small parts. Everyone has good works that can advance the gospel. So in all these things, that's the theme. Everybody has a role. Everybody has a responsibility. Every one of us should be focused on doing good for the sake of the gospel. The behavior, that's how it shows up. Not just soaking up teaching, but actually living it out. And please don't miss this. I mean, everybody lives out the gospel, but there's such a strong emphasis on the older people passing things on to the younger generations. I mean, even the younger men are living in a way that provides an example to their own children, to that next generation. And for non-believers, that's also important. Everybody lives out the gospel for the sake of those younger than them or, or less advanced in the process. Everybody has that responsibility to invest in the next generation. And everything in us wants to resist that. Everything in us wants to just sit tight, to hang with our own group, to be with people like us, listen to our own music, shape church around only our preferences. But that's the path to death. That's the exact opposite of doing good for the sake of the gospel. The the urge for us to only associate with folks like us, to only surround ourselves with our own people, our own generation, that attitude is deadly. It's the opposite of what God calls us to. In fact, that's what Paul accuses the false teachers of. In chapter 1, he says, they profess to know God, but with their deeds, they deny him. Their behavior doesn't reflect a burning passion for the next generation. Instead, their behavior is just self-centered. But remember the words of Jesus. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake 
and for the sake of the gospel, we'll save it. We spend so much of our time and energy trying to save our own lives, not denying ourselves, but just feeding ourselves, catering to our own whims, doing what we want. But that's the path to death. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. We've got to be continually focused on doing good for the sake of the gospel. If you're only living in your own comfort, you're making church about your own growth and your own preferences, you're not living out the gospel. Jesus tells us that. We have to deny ourselves. That's the path to life. And in a healthy church, that shows up in our behavior. Everybody has a responsibility. And specifically, all of us have a role of pouring in to the next generations. I mean, of all the possible examples of doing good, that's the one that Paul commands in this letter. Everybody has that responsibility to develop people who are younger than you. The whole gospel depends on it. It's the path to life. And Jesus tells us it's going to be hard and uncomfortable. It'll involve sacrifice. It did for him. He spent three years developing the next generation of church leaders. It cost him his very life. But if he hadn't been focused on pouring into those 12 disciples, then you and I wouldn't be here. We'd be dead in our sins. So Jesus did it for our sake, and he wants us to do it for the sake of others, for the next generation of the church. Just a few verses later in Titus, Paul tells us that very idea. He says, Jesus gave himself for us to set us free from every kind of lawlessness and to purify for himself a people who are truly his, who are eager to do good. There it is again, this emphasis on doing good, good works. That's why Jesus gave himself for us, to create generations of people who would do good for the sake of the gospel. So everybody has a responsibility, bending to the generations behind for the sake of the gospel, each and every one of us. But let's flip the script just a bit. We say everyone has that responsibility to develop people younger than them, to live out their faith with and for the next generation. But let's say it another way. Everybody has an opportunity. This passage has a charge for each of us to look to the generations behind us, but it also has a charge for each of us to look to the generations ahead of us. So a charge for the older people to bend to generations behind, a charge for younger people to look to the generations ahead and learn from them. So everybody has a responsibility and everybody has an opportunity. As an actor, nobody starts off with a starring role. You've got to grow into that kind of role. You start with small roles, small parts, and you learn from other people. You get better and you get bigger roles. It's like being on the, the JV team and you work your way up to varsity, right? And a key part of that is taking advantage of opportunities. So while we all should be bending to the generation behind, that's our role, we also all have an opportunity, an opportunity to reach up to the generation ahead. So if you're a young man, don't sit around and wait for a crisis before you go seek out wisdom from older people. Go develop those relationships now. It's on you to do that. Think about all the mistakes you could avoid in your life because there's somebody in here who's made every single one of those mistakes and they can tell you what not to do, right? Just think about that. Everybody has an opportunity. Younger women, there's so many things you could learn from older women. Just think of, of the workplace wisdom alone, a generation that had to elbow their way into the workforce, not to mention all the other kinds of life lessons. Everybody has an opportunity. And living for the sake of the gospel is hard. It goes against our natural bent. But it's the path 
to life, to life that's truly life. And while our temptation is just to seek out our own comfort, Jesus holds out for us a responsibility and an opportunity, a responsibility for each of us to invest in future generations and advance the gospel in that way, and an opportunity for each of us to learn from those who are already living out the sound teaching. I love what Pastor Andy said a few weeks ago. He asked the question, who's going to lead this church 10 years from now? The church is always one generation away from extinction, right? If we all don't play our part, then the answer is no one will. No one will be capable of leading this church. The older among us will have missed their opportunity to invest in the future, and the younger among us will have missed their opportunity to learn and to grow. So how do we put these things into practice? How do we start? I want us to get very practical with the time that we have left. If you look in your sermon notes, you're going to see a couple of things. First, you're going to see three blanks, three blank lines. And that's a place for you to just write the names of three people who are from a different generation than you. Three people that you can begin to invest in. They might be an older person or a younger person, depending on what generation you're in. So just three people who are from a different age bracket than you. And once you've identified three folks, I want you to just start small. Just circle one name, one of those names. Just one of those people that you can reach out to and begin a meaningful relationship with them. And underneath those blanks, you're going to see a series of questions. These are just helpful questions. Some are deeper than others, but just some ways to get conversations going. So that's it. If you're older, find that person whose name you're circled and, and invite them to dinner. Before you leave, invite them to dinner. If you're younger, just invite that older person that you've circled to coffee. Just start simple. You can bring along those questions. You can ask questions of your own, but just, just take a step. Just one simple way that we can all do good for the sake of the gospel. Because every one of us has a responsibility. And every one of us has an opportunity. And remember, there are no small parts. All of us are important. We all have the role of a lifetime. A role of developing the next generations of God's church. And the whole world is watching. You know, the world judges Christianity not based on our teaching or our doctrine, but based on how those things show up in the lives of Jesus' followers. So are you and I doing good for the sake of the gospel? It's the role of a lifetime. There's so many ways that we might do good, but the most significant way to do good for the sake of the gospel is right here, investing in other generations. So let's commit ourselves to that responsibility and that opportunity. Will you pray with me? God, the burning passion that I have is for Trinity to be a place that is truly multi-generational in not just our, our attendance, but our relationships, that we would be a church that is uh, fully integrated in doing good for the sake of the gospel, that we would be a church that is full of people who are uh, going against the culture in terms of valuing older wisdom and engaging younger people, seeing value in different generations, Lord. And I pray that you would uh, knock us out of our comfort zone, help us to understand uh, how to engage other generations, and help us even this week to, to take that initial invitation and, and to be able to begin relationships that will bring glory to you, that will advance the gospel in the way that you've chosen for us to do good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.